0: you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: minute and then we'll kick off. Wonderful to see you all. Great to have this turnout. I can see some very familiar faces. Wonderful to, to have you all here. So thank you. There is one seat back here if anyone um, is, you know, in need of a perch. Okay, we might kick off. Thanks, for coming along. The city of Melbourne respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we are meeting on, the Wurundjeri Wawurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin and pays respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm gonna put this down, sorry. We're committed to our reconciliation journey. Because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. Welcome, everyone. Great to have you here. I'm Jocelyn Chu, the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. And I'm extremely excited to be launching M Talks, the Excellent City series, tonight. So, welcome. 2021 was a big year for design at the city. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah? Hopefully I don't run out of gas, but we'll keep going. (laughs) In October, we launched two formal design forums, the Design Excellence Advisory Committee and the Melbourne Design Review Panel. These forums are key components of our design excellence program. Amendment C308, Urban Design in the Central City, was also approved and introduces a revised design and development overlay, along with the Central Melbourne Design Guide. In developing the Excellent City series, we were keen to open debate on what design excellence means. We see the series as a forum through which to explore this, with experts from consulting and academia, as well as our communities, yourselves, and the broader public. This year, we're exploring themes of equity, tonight's session, resilience and Aboriginality. We're excited to showcase some of the thinking that is already informing design at the city and to use these conversations to identify areas for further address and development. We hope this will be the first of an annual series of talks on the excellent city. And on tonight's topic of designing equity, Cities continue to be designed, for the most part, to serve the average person. Basic assumptions are made about user attributes which influence the way spaces and places are shaped and experienced. These spaces also influence how individual users think about and interact with others, so they're incredibly important. By celebrating diversity, we open opportunities to create rich and inclusive cities, Today, we have brought together a panel of experts and city users to discuss the importance and complexity of designing cities for all persons. We look forward to your participation in the conversation, should you wish to participate. We're not going to pick on you, don't worry. <laughs> and our moderator is Alan gouchy Seven, a landscape architect in city design Ella is currently working on Greenline, various landscape and urban design projects, and design review. In 2021, Ella was awarded the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects Victorian Presidents Award, recognising her commitment to advocacy, the empowerment of women, and the progression of young professionals within landscape architecture. Thank you everyone.
2: Thanks, Joss. Is it working for me? Yeah. Yeah. In and out a bit? Okay. Awesome. So, um, first of all, I would also like to start by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri Wurung people of the land, uh, the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting today, and to extend my respect to um, past elders, past, present, and uh, any uh, traditional owners who might be here today. Um, As Jocelyn mentioned, my name is Ella Gauchy-Sedden. I'm a landscape architect at City Design and I'm really excited to be moderating this session for you today. We have an excellent lineup, um, and you will meet them in a moment. Um, But first of all, a couple of uh, housekeeping items. So um, you might have been made aware um, or maybe not yet that we're filming tonight. Um, There's a poster over on the kiosk and if you have... Uh, any issues with that or any questions, find someone who has a City of Melbourne lanyard and let them know. Otherwise, uh, Danny over there, there's a few floating around. Um, Otherwise, uh, we take your attendance as confirmation that you're happy to be filmed and photographed, so thank you. (laughs) Um, Secondly, uh, you might have seen some uh, flyers floating around with a QR code on it. That is a link to a Slido, which you might have used before. It's basically an online um, kind of uh, forum where you can respond to questions and I'll let you know where those questions are appropriate, but that will also remain open for the rest of uh, about a week. So feel free to go back and answer later. We would really love to have your um, involvement in that way. And finally... Um, to make sure we thoroughly, thoroughly captured today's conversation, we have the wonderful Debbie Wood, who will be our graphic recorder. Um, and Debbie, what, wh- what do they look up if they want to find you? Uh, my Instagram handle is
1: deb and I
2: might... Um, Post some have, snips. Yeah, I'll, I'll share during the night. If you want to see the progress. Yeah. Um, so, down to business. I thought that I would start by kicking us off with a definition. Core to our discussion discussion today is the concept of intersectionality. Um, You probably heard this term, you might be very familiar with it, maybe not. Um, But just to make sure that we're all on the same page, I wanted to explain what it means in the words of the woman who coined the term uh, 30 years ago. So, Kimberly Crenshaw um, says that. Intersectionality is basically a lens, a prism for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. We tend to talk about race inequality as separate from inequality based on gender, class, sexuality or immigration, or immigrant status. What's often missing is how some people are subject to all of these and experience, uh, and the experience is not just the sum of its parts. So that's enough of me talking. I'm going to hand over to our panellists now to introduce themselves. And I'd like to ask that when you do introduce yourselves, that you might reflect a little bit on how your identity and or personal experiences have influenced the way that you engage with the city and how this has influenced your work and or research. So, um, Simona, could I ask for you to please kick us off?
3: Yeah, I'm Simona Um and yeah, I'd like to start by acknowledging um, it's always a privilege to speak on Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung country of Kulin nation. Um, yeah, and I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and um, respects to elders past, present and emerging and Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people here. Intersectionality, I think, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, my, 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 I guess my lens, you know, as a trans woman, um, you know, I guess like that's, I guess like one way that I kind of look at the world. But I I think in terms of like practice and intersectionality, I always try and look at it from the point of view of like, you know, like how is disadvantage working? And to what extent does disadvantage, I guess, um, like affect Sovereignty, how does it affect, affect um, like a seat at the table, like opportunities for visibility, for audibility and for representation so that we're sort of going beyond this idea of diversity and inclusion um, so that we can affect, I guess, like real change and we can change um, life chances and I guess inclusion in civic life for people who do live at the margins. And sometimes that's about stepping back and seeding like, like you know, my place or, like, or, and encouraging other people to, like, see their place um, at the table and to speak, so, yeah.
2: Great. And can you give us a little bit of an introduction about who you are?
3: On who I am, sure. Well, uh, well. okay, sorry, I didn't think it mattered, but uh, I am. It matters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, like, I, I'm a musician, um, you know, I'm a DJ. I'm a producer. I um, also an academic uh, at, at um, Melbourne School of Design in architecture. I just handed in a PhD Wee! on Sunday, so I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit sleepy. You know, that's probably why I'm less interested in talking about myself. And I'm <laughs> and I'm 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 really in like the I'm in the zone still. You know, I'm cleaning my house and catching up on sleep. So. Um yeah, and I also like am a radio broadcaster on triple R sometimes when they ring me up and they need someone <laughs> to fill in. Like they rang me up on Tuesday morning and I'm like, nah babe, I'm asleep.
2: Is he
4: sleeping? Um
3: yeah, how's that?
4: Great, excellent. Thanks Thank for the reminder. You, <laughs> um Lara. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lara Brown. My pronouns are she and her. I've worked as a writer and editor for architecture magazines in the States, in Chicago, and also here in Melbourne. I'm an immigrant, so I grew up in Ohio and then lived in Chicago for 11 years, and I'm a single mom to a disabled child, so I identify as a carer. I was a mature student and earned a master's in urban planning from the University of Melbourne a couple years ago, where I wrote a master's thesis on called Tales of Inclusion and Exclusion, Carer's Experience of Third Spaces um, in Greater Melbourne. So a third space, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that, would be not your home, not school, not work, but everything in between. So this is a third space, for example. Um, I have a little pet project called One Love Jump and will be at Melbourne Knowledge Week and it is simply skipping rope in public spaces. So I call it celebrating Melbourne's diversity through community fitness and play. It's free, which is important to me. We make it as accessible as possible for people. And I might also be able to pull off an inclusive cycling event called Everybody Rides in partnership with Dutch Cargo Bike for the same festival. So we'll see if I can get that together. COVIDs have a scrambling a little bit. Uh, my day job, I work as Outreach and Communications Manager for ORIN, that's Australian Urban Research Infrastructure Network, where we help researchers access data, analytical tools, and mapping. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for being here. Kahana. Hello. It's a
5: bit hard to top, to top those introductions, guys. Um, my name is Kahana. I see a lot of friendly faces and uh, familiar faces around here. Thank you for coming, and thank you for having me. Um, I'm here as a resident, and a business owner, and a lover of Melbourne City. So I will be speaking, very much focusing on that lens. I am I born. I was born in Indonesia. I grew up in Singapore. I moved here to Australia when I was 18, and I think my 20th anniversary um, in Australia has is coming up this week. Um, so this is very much home for me, um, but in terms of as a migrant and as someone who moves around uh, growing up, around, this, around the world really, it is very hard for me to pin down what is home and the sense of belonging and where family actually lies. Um, so from that, I will bring uh, a bit of a urban design or architecture lens through city design questioning who makes decisions for us um, that dictates the way we live our lives and the options that we are given to in in terms of how we want to lead our life and how we want to bring up our kids in the future. So as a day-to-day job, I'm an urban designer, as I've already um, uh, revealed, and my pet project and what I'm passionate about is creating streets for people um, because I think mobility is a basic human rights and that is something that we should always champion for. So, driving is not the only option.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Kahana, that's great. Nancy. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name's Nancy Pierratzio. I work at the City of Melbourne. Um, my role is the Senior Policy Officer of Diversity and Equality. I have been working at the City of Melbourne for 20 years now. Um, and I've moved into a new branch known as community development. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively new branch and the focus of that branch is around, and I always have to look at my notes here for this because <laughs> um, there, are, there are four main focuses for this new branch and it relates to neighborhoods, community engagement and impact policy and capability building, and strategy and projects. And this new branch is all about engaging with community at a really grassroots neighbourhood level. And it's really about us understanding the needs, aspirations and values of members of our community and making sure that we listen and we hear and we take on board those issues for community. Um, Earlier on in my career, I worked in the area of community safety and crime prevention, and through that, I really noticed and understood that women and gender diverse and non-binary people experience crime, violence, and safety in very different ways to men. And that got me learning and thinking about, well, how do we how do we address, how do we address this? So um I participated in a whole range of state and national networks in really understanding what those issues were and um we were very lucky here in Melbourne Victoria to have uh research by uh Vic Health and, and um and a groundbreaking national framework that has been developed by Our Watch around the prevention of violence against women that has really helped lead the thinking and understanding of what needs to be done around addressing those underlying drivers of violence against women. And what we know and what the research tells us is that gender inequality is the driver, the main driver. So um, my role at the moment is around really... um, raising awareness and, uh, and uh, sharing that knowledge and information with um, staff within our organisation and within our community about what those underlying drivers are. And also really developing and working with staff across council in being able to embed gender equality and prevention of violence against women in the work and in the way we work. And um, I'll leave it at that. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Nancy. It's really exciting, the community development branch, and it's already doing great things. Um, And Michele, over to you.
6: Thanks, Helen. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Helen, the City of Melbourne team for having me. Uh, I guess Michele Acuto. Um, Since I didn't make it past 100 in MasterChef Australia, I double (laughs) into (laughs) academia now. Uh, So um, I'm Director of Melbourne Centre for Cities and Associate Dean in the Melbourne School of Design. Uh, uh, And I guess I come at this uh, in a couple of ways, but I guess I I mainly come at it uh, trained as a lawyer and in political science. Uh, and I mainly come at it, hanging out quite a bit with uh, ambulance drivers and garbos and sex workers at nighttime. So I tend to work quite a lot on nighttime issues and the nighttime governance um, of cities. I'm known to just potter around in various City of Melbourne committees, so <laughs> apologies. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and sort of projects like Nancy's um, Night Justice, for instance, as an example, the Nighttime Economy Advisory Committee needs a better title for the City of <laughs> Melbourne, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But I guess I come at it from sort of that that angle of uh, people that are out of sight at nighttime sort of fixing stuff and making sure that your garbage is out of the way and uh, playing the music rather than dancing, though she dances quite a bit, uh, and serving the drinks rather than drinking them uh, and thinking through sort of what what that means uh, to keep the place going uh, and the inequalities built into that.
2: Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And uh, I did say we had an all star lineup, and now you also know. Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to have a bit of a uh, discussion. Uh, each person is sort of going to respond to a question, and we're going to chat, and then we'll uh, invite everyone to um, sort of ask questions towards the end. So, you know, get your questions ready. Um, the other thing is that now is a good time to jump onto Slido if you wanted. Um, there's a question in there around uh, your experience of the city and, and um, how it influences the way that you interact uh, with the city. So, um, Simona, <laughs> um, as you've spoken about, you're an architect, you're a musician, a I'm researcher. I'm an architect,
3: I'm not allowed to call myself that.
2: Okay, sorry, you're um, uh, Institute you... <laughs> are very, very big <laughs> uh-huh. on that. What Continue. were they, What what? What's the correct term when you're not no registered? Idea. Anyway, and not an architect, a musician, researcher, and a trans woman, um, which gives you a unique perspective. Um, you use these lenses to explore and champion the discourse around the importance of diversity and inclusion in architecture, public space, and civic life. Um. Congratulations on completing your PhD. It is very exciting. And I guess on that, what findings are emerging from your work and research and advocacy about creating safe and inclusive and welcoming spaces and some wins and losses or wins and challenges, let's say? Yeah.
3: Well, I feel like for four years it was like unpacking the dystopia that the city is for Transgender diverse people you know you were talking before about how I guess like the city is about the normal and this sort of normativity that particularly trans and diverse people have to negotiate like you know as a trans person like every day I leave the house or every day I even you know like look at the news or something like that like every day is a negotiation for me with what I call the cis normative paradigm and the cis normative paradigm is like this assemblage of a whole lot of you know things to do with the the gender binary gender normativity but it also extends to you know like um cis norm uh, sorry heteronormativity uh, you know all of these sort of things i guess that um you, you know just create contested spaces for you know for, for for me i guess to you know work around so that's why I've always said things like more than bathrooms. You know, it's the airport, it's prisons, it's um, you know, like they're not my experiences, but they are experiences that 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 the transgender diverse community, you know, like have to sort of deal with. You know, like surveillance and policing, and you know, so the way that our bodies move through space is is you know, it's a very different experience. So the PhD was more about like really exploring like what those anxieties were, like what were the anxieties for me personally? What are they for, I guess, the community? But also like what are the anxieties like, for cisgender people because, like, it's not a transgender problem or a transgender issue. You know, like, bathrooms are not a trans problem. Like, I, I feel like that's a cis issue. You know, like, the issues for trans people are, like, access to healthcare, suicide prevention, like, you know, violence reduction, you know, like, understanding gendered violence and, and I guess, like, the vectors of gendered violence beyond these sort of lens of, you know, male versus female. So it's like... Um, you know that they were the findings, so but so the first four years were kind of like trauma, trauma, trauma. But then by the end of it, it was kind of like I found the hope in it because like what I also understood as a musician and as an architect that queering and transing there's this really beautiful sense of fu- of futurity and potentiality that I've used as a methodology of survival, but also I think of creative practice, like you know, since I was a kid, like since I saw Sylvester sing You Make Me Feel Mighty Real on the telly, like in 1979, you know. But that was the first time I saw myself reflected on the telly and that was like, it inspired me. And I did that in the lounge room under the, under the nose of my mum and dad, you know, at primetime TV. So there's all these ways as like trans people that we sort of see ourselves reflected. And so music becomes this site of transing it becomes this site of resistance it comes this it's so you know and, and we sort of and we bring these experiences with us you know so the club or the stage or um i guess how i've used music to tell my story but also to create community has been like this really beautiful place where i imagine utopias you know and you know and and imagining utopias and dreaming our way out of you know what um, Jose Esteban Munoz calls like you know like you know finding our way out of the quagmire, out of the dystopia. You know, and, and in um, you know in abolitionist practice, it's like well, you know we have to dream our way out and believe that those radical futures can actually happen. Like, what is a city without police? You know, like like what does that actually entail you know like how do we bring that about you know and so um, and then and how does that benefit people that live on the margins that are you know you know like how does the system cause harm like how does uh, one thing that came out of it was like you know how is architecture like an agent of administrative violence because it upholds this cis normative heteronormative system that comes from the government, you know, we've got four pieces of legislation, proposals at the moment that want to basically eradicate trans people's lives. And that's the reality, that's the cold face that I'm on and every trans and gender diverse person's on. And I'm a bit like, well, we all need to be working together to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? But, you know, like Liberal and Labor voted for it and the Nationals and, you know, it's kind of like, it's... You know, it's the conservative and the centrist position is actually working against us and we need to take a radical position. So in order to take the radical position, we need to think of, of these great utopias and believe in them.
2: Yeah, and I guess it must be difficult to do that sometimes when, when you're faced with those kind of conversations happening to then... Or maybe it's an escape, or maybe it's a, the hope
3: that you're talking about. Well, the you know the clubs a great place to yeah. go to sort of do that. You know, it's we just like you know let ourselves. It's a great place of escape. You know, like and you know things like Melbourne Pride, for instance, was were, were great because we all got together in the street and hung out like Northside and all that sort mm. of stuff. Mm. But yeah, you know, so. Um, yeah these spaces are, are really important to us, but it's really important that we are listened to in terms of like you know how we want those spaces to operate because as a community, we can actually hold ourselves accountable in that, in that sense and mm-hmm. and we can we can make those places work like we imagine really um, like we're world builders mm-hmm. you know we always have like queers of you know, like, always been at the forefront of, like, futurity, you know. So, um, yeah, everyone's got a lot to learn from us. Yeah.
2: Um, there's one more thing I wanted... I, I know that you've done some work looking at how to translate those sort of learnings, I guess, from the uh, music world into... Well, some gui- you wrote some guidelines around that space and, and have you sort of translated that into... The public realm, or um, you know, can you see that, that they, they, we can learn from those kind of spaces?
3: Ah, well, yeah, well, like with Music Victoria, there was writing the trans and gender diverse guidelines. Well, that you know, that I mean, that literally came about because you know, if we, you know, the best practice guidelines are like, well, you know, how do we stop? How do we stop violence happening in clubs? Like, how do we stop? Um, you know, but how do we how do we make these places safer for trans and gender diverse people? Like you know, like the the trans scene, the the, the the trans music underground scene has been amazing. It's like you know, it's like at the start of the '90s, like the like the you know, like we had like Razor and Tasty, it was like the first like really big generation of like the queer underground. And now the 2010s has been like a really big trans and gender diverse underground. So like my experience led to like the opportunity to I guess write that. But again, it was like I, I still had to like push back against like timelines and budgets. And it's like we need to include all of the community and this authorship. Like one person can't just write this and be like, great, we've ticked a box, you know, like... I think like things like co-design, for instance, like we just need to sort of unthink that as a process and and we need to pay people and we need to find the money and we need to understand that like these things need to be like they need time to be written in order to be inclusive. Otherwise, they're not in service to community and architecture needs to be in service to community. Otherwise, it's in service to neoliberal capitalism. And in fact, capitalism and neoliberalism has value managed architecture out. So this idea that we would even want to be in that, it just is like, it's part of the mythology of architecture that needs to be completely contested.
2: Thanks, Simona. (laughs) Um, Lara, in your research, you explore experiences Um, of disabled people and their carers in the built environment, as you spoke about. What does a city that embraces the needs of disabled people look like? And how can this way of thinking help us to create an excellent city?
4: Mm -hmm. Um, First, just in case people aren't familiar, I'll define what I used as a definition of carer. So that's an unpaid caretaker of someone who is uh, disabled, chronically ill, mentally ill, could even be temporarily disabled, um, elderly or frail. It's unpaid. And I'd like to share with you four facts about carers. Um, In Victoria, they make up about 11% of the population. So that's about three quarters of a million people who would fit that description. They could be a child up through grandparent, usually caring for a family member or maybe a friend the other is it's gendered it's about 70% of 70% female a local psychologist robert cummins who developed the personal well-being index reported that carers have the lowest subjective well-being score and that they miss out on what he calls the golden triangle of well-being which is financial achievements, and relationships. So the caring role tends to impact all three of those facets. And lastly, in 2015, the estimated amount lost from the Australian economy by carers dropping out of the workforce was, does anyone want to guess? 3.58 billion. So that's what happens. Um, and, And I know this, I've experienced it. I had times when I was in grad school when I was looking for a job where it would have cost me more to pay a carer than I would have made at the job. I had to pay a carer because the special schools don't offer before and after school hour care. So you just have kind of disadvantage upon disadvantage. My son's not getting the same experience as other children and it impacts the carer. So when I spoke to, I interviewed eight carers in semi-structured interviews and I found that it was... I found, identified three barriers. So then if we flip that, then you get what makes it inclusive. Barriers tended to be um, structural. So part of the physical environment, something about it didn't accommodate the person's disability. So you want to remember that there's a range of disabilities. So vision, auditory, sensory, um, intellectual disabilities, physical impairments, stature. Um The second, which surprised me, but I guess sadly it shouldn't surprise me, was how carers were treated when they were with the disabled person that they cared for. The results were that if they were with someone who is visibly disabled, they were treated well. And if they were someone similar to my son who you wouldn't know right away is disabled, they were treated poorly and that increased for women of color. So not only was ableism at play and how people were treated, but you also saw xenophobia, Islamophobia, racism, uh, sexism, and I didn't even ask specifically how people treated them. I just said... um, what what, could you describe what an inclusive environment is like or where are places that you feel included and excluded? So the four women of color mentioned comments people would make, like you need to raise your daughter, um, just give the kid a whack, so strangers with unsolicited advice. The two white women didn't mention it, so I actually just went and circled back with people. I was curious. I'm like, can I just ask how people have treated you in public? And they said, oh, sometimes you get looks, you know. Some, sometimes, maybe someone says something. Um, the, the two white men, uh, the one said that some, one, someone said, oh, can't you make them stop doing that? And about, about an autistic son who I think was stimming. And he's like, I, I really can't. Um, but he said the person was friendly about it. And then the other person whose child was visibly disabled said, people are really lovely. I think they've done a nice job of educating people about disability. So he's a social worker, and I sent him my thesis when I was finished, and he's like, oh, my God, my white male privilege, and just sent a smashed you know, hand-on-the-face emoji to me when he read the results. So, um, and then the last thing that can be a barrier is the need for support. So, the support of maybe a disability support worker to access the built environment.
2: And um, I guess, you know, in the context of talking about um, what that might look like in a in a city, is that something that you looked into?
4: Yeah. So, what that would look like, um, people... A lot of people requested closed-in parks. So if they had a closed-in park for children with autism and ADHD or intellectual disability who are prone to absconding, that they requested that. That would be helpful. If they could go someplace where there are sensory-friendly rooms, so if someone's a child or adult is overwhelmed, they could go to a room that's has low lighting, calming sound. Um, in general people said most places are too loud. They just don't need to be that loud. Also, uh, one person requested an adult-size changing table for a sister who um, is incontinent. So um, let me think what else. Structure. and then And then that attitude. So seven of the eight carers said that they did go into third spaces with a sense of trepidation, not knowing how they would be treated or if the space was going to be accessible yeah
2: it's so much about education isn't it
4: mm, I think so I think so I think yeah because we, we know that disabled people get othered and can feel stigma and there's something called affiliate stigma that carers can feel as well and so my goal is to push for disability inclusion right at the start of every project because the more disabled people are excluded that extends to a carer that can extend to a whole family so you have a whole family possibly not accessing a location because it's too hard or the last time they went someone made a jackass comment about something so you uh, there's a you know we know carers are at risk of loneliness and isolation and seven out of eight who i entered said their loneliness had increased since becoming a carer
2: thank you lara mm-hmm. kahana as you mentioned your work is focused around ensuring that the urban environment that urban environments are designed to be community oriented why and how does creating community oriented spaces ensure design excellence um how do we ensure that all community members are represented in our cities? And finally, as the third part of that question, um, is it possible to measure this? You can choose whichever it's, bits you it's want to respond to. It's a big question
5: to answer in five minutes. <laughs> um, maybe I'll start with a bit of a personal story. One of the most questions that I find hardest to answer as a migrant, when I introduce myself, the first thing they'll ask me will be, where are you from? And I'll be like, I'm from Melbourne. And they will be like, where are you really from? Where are you from? Um, where is home? So that really becomes more and more challenging to answer as I'm setting up and nesting in Melbourne, setting up family, having children, having a business in Melbourne. It's becoming really challenging to answer that kind of question and really underlying That question, whether it is intentional or not, is asking you, why are you here? Why are you here? What bring you here? What do you want here? Do you belong here? And that kind of questions always um, exist within us. And when we look at the city of Melbourne, for example, 50% of our populations are migrants. And those questions always pop up in their head. Is Melbourne actually home for us? Or is it just a transient space that we pass by, we don't engage with the others, we don't engage with the community, we don't engage with the local, we don't participate in the city because it's not really ours. There is no sense of belonging. So when we talk about um, community-oriented spaces, I really find the word community to be fundamental. It's been 30 years since Postcode 3000 has been implemented. In 1992, the city was like a donut, no one lives here, it's literally like a ghost town on weekdays, sorry, week, weekday nights and weekends, it's like a ghost town. Heaps and heaps of initiatives, government deliberate decisions were made and policy will changed about, you know, alcohol policies, um, student housing, to bring people in and create living population. But we're not Disneyland, we're not creating Disneyland, they're not pretend people, they're real people with real needs. 30 years on, some of these people stay here, and they will start setting up roots, they will start to have family. But there are no options for them to stay here, in the city. 90% of our housing product in the city are apartments and one or two bedrooms. And then, of course, we are bombarded with this media about if you have children, you need open space, you need a puppy, you need a pool, you need this and that. They don't exist here. You have great cafes, and I would like to have my children with good coffee. (laughs) But it is really impossible because then to move up and find a home appropriate places in the CBD, I'll have to look at $2 million fancy apartments. And that is exclusive, and that is really creating barriers around um, community creation within the CBD. So in terms of community-oriented spaces and how that contributes to design excellence, perhaps the question needs to be flipped. Perhaps design excellence instills community creation. Um, In terms of community, I think we need to look into habit. How do people use the space, their rituals, because I can come from Indonesia, someone else come from Iran, and we have the same habit and same ritual. And we can still call Melbourne home, and we can both be locals. But it doesn't reflect our culture necessarily. The second is relationship, I think is important, about this, the strange familiarity and how are we allowed to build that relationship. Or are we spending five years of our time in two-bedroom apartment and then having to uproot and move your kids from you know, their kinder or their childcare to move to a bigger, more affordable space. And then for someone like me, which is traumatic because I don't have a driving license, having to learn to drive is a no. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. And it's stressing me out. Um, so that then perpetuates the question, what kind of future are we creating for our future generation? We create this wonderful walkable city in Melbourne. And then once we have kids and they're, what, 14 years old, we rip them up, put them in a suburb, put them in the back seat, and then we come back a generation. And then what do we create in the future? Drivers. So I think in terms of how do we ensure people participate and participation is um, resulting in meaningful outcomes, we firstly need to ask the right question. Not about where you're from, what your nationality are you, all that stuff. It's about where are you local? What is your local? And where you belong. And the second question is about a lot of us, if we don't feel like we belong in a place, we don't feel like we are custodian of the place. If we are not custodian of the place, there will be a lot of um, hesitancy in participating and influencing it outcome. So perhaps this notion about home creating options, creating really welcoming place for community to thrive, is fundamental here, and the barriers could be age, it could be income, it could be culture, language, inability or inaccessibility to information are really difficult. As international students, I remember, I have no idea how I'm gonna get anything. Like, what is local council? I have no idea. And no one tells you that. You know, you kind of figure out and stumble yourself upon finding out where you source information from. So, I think that's important in terms of engaging beyond your usual um, community consultation participants. Mm-hmm. And in terms of
2: what was the last question? Um, how do we <laughs> measure? But I reckon let's come back to that one because okay. I think um, that actually leads us very nicely <laughs> into Nancy, awesome. not Thank to you. put you on the spot here, Nancy. Oh. But Nancy uh, in our community development bl- branch, of course, um, dealing with, some of those sort of questions. Um, And so you're you're the Senior Policy uh, Officer of Diversity and and Equity Um, and you have lots of experience working in government, as you mentioned. So I guess maybe can you speak about some of the key policies that are leading change in this space if you wanted to sort of address um, (laughs) any of what Gahana was saying as well and, yeah, what are the drivers for... um, for the policies and and change, and what opportunities um, are they enabling?
0: Sure, thank you. Uh, it's just really sad to hear the stories that Lara mentioned, as well as Gahana, in relation to the inabilities to really participate and fully engage in the city. And um, I know, based on particularly the work area that I'm involved in, there's been, uh, well, it was, 2016, where there was a Royal Commission into Family Violence that really um, shed light on a lot of issues relating to women's experience of family violence um, and a whole range of issues. And that commission actually developed two, or was the result, um, it resulted in two major strategies being developed for Victoria, the first being Safe and Strong, uh, a Victorian gender equality strategy. And the second being Free From Violence, Victoria's Strategy to Prevent Family Violence and All Forms of Violence Against Women. I'll just talk a bit briefly on this one, but there's a whole range of other acts that are obviously in place to address some of these issues. Um, But uh, the Royal Commission also recommended the introduction of the Gender Equality Act, which came into effect in March of 2021. And um, the Act requires that defined entities, including Victorian public sector, local councils and universities, are now required to develop what's called an develop and implement a gender equality action plan. And that action plan is around addressing the gender inequalities within the workplace. So it's got a focus in the workplace, um, but there's also a whole uh, range of other requirements, including promoting gender equality in policies, programs and services that impact the public The Act also requires that public uh, entities actually have to complete what is called a gender impact assessment. Now, unfortunately, it only focuses on gender, but the Act also recognises that um, gender inequality may be compounded by other forms of disadvantage or discrimination that a person may experience um, on the basis of either Aboriginality, age, disability, ethnicity, gender identity, race, religion, sexual orientation and other, other attributes. So essentially what the act is saying is that in particular councils and these public entities are now obliged to consider gender equality in all um, in all that we do for community, including the design of our public places and spaces and the development and the delivery of our services and programs. That's huge. And um, it's, it's, as I've mentioned, it's only a recent introduction councils are struggling to get their head around what does this mean, how do I I apply this? Um, As we know, councils have many different areas uh, that they influence, whether it's through urban design, whether it's through community service delivery, whether it's um, communications, every area of council is required to look at and consider gender equality in, in its application and in its approach. Um, the Act is currently, as I said, limited to addressing gender inequality. However, I have just recently participated in a forum where the Commissioner for, for Gender Equality for the public sector did, did explain that potentially there is opportunity for it to expand to include other intersecting inequalities in the future, recognising that intersectionality plays a huge role in regards to those inequalities. At a municipal level, the City of Melbourne is committed to addressing all inequalities. We have recently developed what's called the Melbourne Inclusive um, Strategy, which articulates how we intend to embrace diversity, culture, age, gender, sexuality, backgrounds, religions, abilities... Um, And it's really important that we recognise and we build a strategy and we encourage all areas of council to take on board this notion that we need to be inclusive. So what does inclusive mean? It's really important that we are hearing and speaking and listening to members of community so that we understand those individual experiences, experiences that different users of our, our spaces are sharing with us or else, how do we influence, how do we make change? So as part of, I mentioned, being part of the community development branch, we have um, a number of staff who are working in the neighbourhood space, and their purpose and role is really engaging with local members of community to hear those stories. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your
4: podcasts.